Uh, we're going to be reading in the chapter, or Luke chapter 22, verses 47 through 53. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And those, and when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike them with a sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said to them, No more of this. And he touched the ear and healed them. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temples and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out against a robber? As against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power, and the power of darkness. All right, this is our last Sunday. This summer we've been doing, uh, uh, walking through our favorite Bible stories, and this is the last Sunday of that uh, summer break, and next Sunday we'll be resuming our study in the book of Romans. At uh, the end of Romans 12 is kind of where we're at if, you wanna, uh, if you're keeping score at home. So this morning is our final uh, time sort of doing our favorite Bible stories, but that's all right. We're going to stay in the Bible That's because that's kind of how we roll. Um, I don't know if you've had a chance this summer to take a road trip. Some of us have. You get in the car and you say, you know what, I want to get out of the smoke. And as far as I can tell, if you want to drive and get out of the smoke, you uh, drive to St. Louis um, and uh, you just keep driving. But if you've taken a road trip, there are certain things you get in your head, sort of things you expect. Uh, if you're going to take a road trip, whether it be uh, to the coast or up to Portland, down the Bay Area or out east uh, somewhere, there's some sort of things you prepare yourself uh, for. You uh, would expect a long drive, so you maybe uh, would try to make the car or the vehicle as comfortable as possible. You might expect along the way you're going to have to find a rest stop. You might find, expect along the way you're going to have to stop and have a meal or two, depending on how far you're going. You may have to stop and refuel uh, your vehicle. You might expect if you're traveling with others during the course of this road trip, the conversation might enjoy both uh, laughter and hilarity as well as... Um, interpersonal relational conflict, uh, or, or what we call uh, yelling at each other. Uh, don't cross the line. You cross the line, uh, whatever it might be in your car. So you would expect some of these things. You say, hey, that's, that's road trip. That's what you do. That's part of being a road trip. But there are certain things that might happen that are, are beyond what you would find acceptable. So if I told you uh, you're going on a road trip, and on the way, somewhere in the middle of eastern Oregon, your car will break down. You will spend two days getting you and your car home, you will pay a guy named Cletus $3,000 to tow your car three miles. And then you'll pay another guy to tow it home. And what would you say? You'd say, well, I'm not going. It's not worth it. There's a certain amount of stuff I'll put up with. But, but now that Cletus is involved, the road trip's off. We're just not doing it. So there's certain expectations. Today, the, what we're looking at in the life of Jesus is the reality that for the disciples, Jesus in this particular moment was not what they expected. And in that moment, they said, done, we're out of here. Not what we expected. Certainly the disciples were expecting trouble. Certainly the disciples were expecting difficulty. Jesus was arguing with religious and political leaders on a daily basis. But once it got right down to it, they said, oh, this is what's happening? That's not what we expected. And the result is, we're out of here. The disciples knew that following Jesus would lead to trouble. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, they discovered how much trouble, and it was too much. 
They said, no, thank you. Let's start in the book of John. I know uh, uh, Ben read from the book of Luke, and that'll be the last place we end up. So we're heading towards the chapter that Ben read in Luke. But let's look at John chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. Of course, after Jesus and the disciples enjoyed a meal in the upper room, they sang a hymn, and then they crossed the Kidron Valley and got, went over to the garden. If you're standing on Temple Mount, as it is today, if you head due east, you'll cross down into a deep valley, Kidron Valley, just as you're coming up on sort of the foothill of the Mount of Olives. You have there the Garden of Gethsemane, and it's a beautiful, beautiful place to visit even today. They went out to this garden. This is verse 1. It was a place where he and his disciples had often gone because Judas, the betrayer, knew that. Jesus often met there with his disciples. Verse 3, so Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, he went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. Verse 6, when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So we asked him again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. Gesturing towards his disciples. This was to fulfill the word that was spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. Verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his ear right ear, as a matter of fact. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that my father has given me? So they made their way from the upper room. They made their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas shows up with his posse, and Jesus says, who are you looking for? And uh, they said, Jesus of Nazareth, and Nazareth, and he says, I am he. And look, this is something unique to John in the Gospels in verse 6. When Jesus said to them, I am he, what'd they do? They all fell down. I don't know if they fell forward, they fell backward, if they dropped to the ground. I don't know what happened. They drew back and they fell to the ground. And then you would imagine all these guys, lanterns and swords flopping around, sort of gathering themselves and standing back up. And Jesus saying, now, who are you looking for again? Uh, easy. You know, what's, what's going to happen next? What Jesus is making sure everybody in the garden knows, there's one person in charge in this moment, and it's him. He has the power. He has the might. Everything that's about to go down is going down precisely as he means for it to go down, and he wants everybody uh, to know that. Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him. Judas showing up with this group of soldiers and security personnel was not a surprise to Jesus. In fact, if you want to, you can turn over to John chapter 13, beginning uh, in verse... Uh, no, that's not that one. Hold on. John 13, 18. John 13, 18. It says this. They were in the upper room. Jesus says this. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. However, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. So Jesus here in the upper room quotes from the book of Psalms saying, I know who my betrayer is and he is one among us. Let me read that Psalm. It's Psalm 41 verses 9 and 10. 
you can follow along with me if you want to and read it. Psalm 41, 9 and 10 says this, Even my close friend whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. Was Jesus surprised that Judas betrayed him? No. Was Judas' betrayal going to derail the mission of God and Jesus' purpose for mankind? No. Was Judas' betrayal of Jesus able to remove Jesus from being in the driver's seat and take it over? No. Everything was going precisely according to the scripture, and everything was going exactly as Jesus in, uh, intended. We have here in the Garden of Gethsemane a great show of power and a great show of weakness in John. The great show of power is Jesus in restraining himself from destroying his enemies. Jesus was able to, with the word of his mouth, knock over this security detail. Just with the word of his mouth, but he doesn't uh, destroy them, he doesn't uh, smite them, he doesn't annihilate them, he doesn't uh, turn them into frogs, whatever he might do. He doesn't do any of that. In a great show of power and strength, he voluntarily chooses not to do what every single one of us would do, in order to accomplish the will of the Father. So the, the show of strength in this moment was Jesus' restraint from using his power so that he would accomplish the Father's will. There's also a great show of weakness in the Garden of Gethsemane in John chapter eight and who, 18. And who is that from? Peter. Peter draws his sword and takes a hard cut at Malchus or Malchus. And cuts off his ear. I don't know how you got to cut a guy's ear off with a sword. One commentator says he's got a pretty good idea at this. Number one, Malchus is probably kind of young. He's got some moves. He's, he's kind of spry. So maybe as the sword is coming at him, kind of ducks to the, the right, left, and, and, and leaves exposed his ear. So uh, as, as Peter takes a good hard cut, wanting to do what you're supposed to do with a sword, separate a guy's noggin from the rest of his torso... Malchus kind of makes a dodge, and he, all he gets is ear. The other thing we have to keep in mind, we've mentioned this before, for a swordsman, Peter is a really good fisherman. He's cast more nets than swords, clearly. And so both between Malchus' ability to maybe uh, shuck and jive a little bit and uh, Peter's inability to wield a sword as well as he wields a fishing net, he ends up losing merely an ear. But here's the thing. Peter, in this moment, wants to take over, and in a, a terrible display of weakness, tries to. And Jesus corrects him, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? And what does Peter say with his sword? No, you should not drink the cup the Father has given you. And Jesus, in, in an extraordinary display of power, says, oh yeah, I will, and I will do so voluntarily. I will go to the cross voluntarily because that's what God has called me to do. This is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Guess what is fantastic about the, the Gospels, especially in relation to the Garden of Gethsemane? We get four distinct viewpoints of what has happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. Thankfully, by God's good grace, football is starting again. Now, some of you aren't into football, and that's fine. I am. I like football. Football reminds me Everything might be okay in the world. <laughs> you think I'm kidding. My kids are like, no, that's right. Um, 
somebody might score a touchdown. So they go down, and there's a big pile of human bodies, and they think, well, did he score? Did he not? Of course, it used to be the refs would make a signal, but now they look at each other. What? What? Let's play the replay. So they go to the replay, and they play it from 17 different cameras. You've got the pylon camera. You've got the camera that's floating around over the stadium camera. They've got a camera in one of the refs' shoelaces, I think. All of a sudden, now you're looking at 17 different angles of whether or not this guy scored a touchdown. In the Gospels, we get four distinct angles of what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so far, we've looked at John's angle. John has some unique perspectives to what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. He leaves some things out that others include, and he includes some things that others leave out. And what I want us to do just very briefly is look at each of these distinct camera angles so that we might examine how we should look at our own hearts and what we expect of Jesus. So let's go to the next camera, which is Matthew. Matthew chapter 26. Back in the Garden of Gethsemane, they made their way across the Kidron Valley. They all start the same. Judas came with a great crowd of swords and clubs, and the chiefs of the high priests had sent him, and the betrayer had given them a sign. So this is new for Matthew compared with John. The one I kiss is the man sees him. So he had created a signal with his posse. So he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Why would Judas need to provide a signal? Two reasons. Number one, there's no Instagram. Many of these guys might not have actually seen Jesus in person. They may not know precisely what he looks like. Secondly, it's nighttime. Even if they had seen him during the daytime in the temple courts, in the uh, darkness of night, they may have trouble discerning which one precisely is Jesus. Judas, having spent many nights with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, would know exactly which one Jesus is and is able to identify quickly for his posse, here's the one we're looking for. So he walks up and kisses Jesus, and Jesus, in somewhat cold fashion here in Matthew, says, friend, do what you came to do. Do your thing. They came up and they seized Jesus, one of those who were with him, the Bible says in verse 51. Peter here is unnamed. Because Peter, for Matthew, is unimportant. He doesn't care that Peter is named. One of them stretched out his hand, drew his sword, and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Jesus said to that one, put your sword back in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? That he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. So Matthew leaves out the, what John said, where he said, I am he, and everybody falls down. But he includes something even more powerful. Jesus says this to the swordsman. We all know that's Peter, right? Don't you think if I called my father, he would send me 12 legions of angels? That's a lot of angels. How many angels would it take to conquer this little posse? It would take one angel who was on injured reserve on break to take care of this little posse. And Jesus, at his command, could ask for 12 legions of angels. What does Jesus do with legions of spiritual beings? He tells them to go into pigs. That's how powerful Jesus is. Remember that demon in the guy? What was his name? I am legion. And what did Jesus do with this legion of demons? Ruined a large amount of high-quality bacon. Maybe you read that story different than I do. I don't know. Jesus is powerful enough on a whim to command legions of demons to do what he wants. 
and he at his command could have 12 legion of angels to do what he wants. Do you think he's intimidated by this little posse and their lanterns? Not in the least. And he wants Peter to understand that. Cute sword, Peter. Very precious. I mean, you almost feel like he's talking to a toddler who's trying to help his dad change a flat. He comes out with his little Fisher-Price wrench. I'll give you a hand with that, Dad. Nice. Yeah, okay. Move along. Go see if Mom needs help. And Jesus here in his power says, No thanks. I am going to voluntarily, by my strength, be bound to be taken away by these enemies because I will drink the cup the Father has given me. Look at verse 55. Jesus said this to the crowds. Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was in the temple courts. Why didn't you seize me? He says, I'll tell you why. This is all taking place. So scripture would be fulfilled. Now, Matthew here adds a note John omitted because John's nicer than Matthew. Matthew adds this. Then all his disciples fled. Just like that. We expected some trouble. We didn't expect you to lay down. We expected you called the 12 legion of angels. We expected something. What do we call it when you have the power to do something and choose not to because you know God's purpose? Jesus called it this in Matthew chapter 5. Meekness. That's what Jesus is doing here. I have the power to do whatever I want, but I know what God wants, so I will do the will of the Father in meekness. The power to do anything and instead doing the right thing according to the will of the Father. I might just add this. We love the notion of meekness, just like the disciples love the idea of meekness. We actually hate meekness. We like get her done, fix the problem, bring the resources to bear kind of people. We don't like the kind of people who say, oh yeah, I could fix it, but I think it'll be better for us not to. Excuse me? And the disciples, once they realize Jesus is going to be meek, we want a different Messiah. We want a Messiah that brings legions of angels to the problem that are in front of us. And the disciples bailed on him. All the disciples left. Earlier, Jesus had referenced this verse in Zechariah. This is Zechariah 13, verse 7. He had told his disciples that this passage applied to them. At the time, they didn't believe him. Here's Zechariah 13, 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. And this came uh, to be fulfilled the moment his disciples fled from his presence. So John mentions Peter. John tells us the name of the high priest. John tells us Jesus knocked people on their rear ends. Matthew omits Peter's name, omits the name of the high priest, omits the, the fact that Jesus knocked people on their hind ends, but he includes the fact that Jesus in meekness is intentionally restraining himself, voluntarily being bound, and makes uh, um, an important note here, the disciples bailed on him. Next angle, Mark. Mark and Matthew, of course, are extremely similar. One commentator, one author said this, Mark is what you would write if you wanted to turn Matthew into a screenplay for a movie. So Mark tends to be shorter and move a little quicker. So if you get bored reading Matthew, which I can't understand that, but if you get bored reading Matthew, read Mark. It's uh, very, very similar to Matthew, and it reads a little quicker. So let's look a little bit. There's some unique things about the book of Mark 
his angle on the events that are helpful. Starts the same way as the other ones did. Judas shows up with his posse. Now the betrayer had given them, given them this sign. This is uh, Mark uh, chapter 14, beginning in verse 44. The one I will kiss is the man, seize him and lead him away under guard. Yeah, that'll help. When he came, he went up to him at once and, and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. No response from Jesus to Judas in Mark. One of those who stood by took out a sword, cut off the high priest's ear. Jesus said to them, Jesus omits any rebuke of the swordsmen in Mark. No rebuke of the swordsmen in Mark. Jesus just merely says this, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. Well, let the scriptures be fulfilled. Verse 50, Mark includes what Matthew does. And they all left him and fled. But Matthew, Mark adds one little detail, only Mark includes, and that's because most authors believe Mark is talking about himself in verse 51. A young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. They seized him too, but he left the linen cloth in their hands and ran away naked. When you say naked in the Bible, you have to say naked. I don't know if you knew that. That's a theological thing. You learned that in school. Why does Mark add this? We already were in many ways devastated that the disciples fled from Jesus, right? We should be. That's disturbing. It's, you're reading through the Gospels. You go, wait, they're running away? Now, I know you know the story before, but if you read it for the first time, you'd never been reading it, you get to that part and you go, what is happening? But Mark adds something else about the headlong flight of the disciples away from their Messiah. He adds this. Their headlong flight was filled with shame. Mark ran away naked, but really at the end of the day, they all did. Everything was exposed in that moment. The true condition of their heart was laid bare to their Savior. We will abide you, Jesus, as long as you are convenient. As long as you are meeting, meeting for me, a bare minimum of expectations of what I think you ought to be, look, what you ought to be like. As soon as you are no longer meeting those expectations, sayonara. I'm out of here. And Mark shows us the shame of their headlong flight from Jesus. And in fact, that becomes a theme of Mark later on in the book as it's discussing the linen cloths of Jesus laid in the tomb. There's this distinct notion that Mark's uh, linens were replaced with Jesus' linens. We see that also in the book of Revelation. So his shame is restored by Christ alone. Jesus is the focus. The injustice that Jesus is experiencing at the hands of his captors as a fulfillment of scripture that Jesus yielded to voluntarily and a recognition here in Mark that Jesus being left alone by his disciples is shameful. And they bore on themselves a weight, a burden of shame because of their abandonment. They're uh, driven by, how I would say it is this, selfish fear. This is Lord of the Flies all of a sudden. It's who has the conch, whoever is most powerful will get theirs. And that's where the disciples ended up. Driven by fear, protect myself, do what might makes right. And that's exactly where the disciples are in this, in this moment. Let's finish with Luke. <clears throat> Excuse me. It is Luke 22, 
Beginning at verse 47, Ben already read it. We're just going to highlight some things here that are unique to Luke. Starts in the same place. You know how it starts. We're familiar with this now. Judas shows up, Garden of Gethsemane. It's dark. He's got his posse, lantern, swords, yea for Judas. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. Luke doesn't tell us why. We have to read Matthew and Mark to figure out why. Luke just assumes we all know that's a signal. Jesus, though, actually interrupts him, and Luke never actually describes a physical kiss between the two. Judas, would you betray the son of a man with a kiss? So what Jesus does here is make sure we all know loud and clear, nobody's buying the act, Judas. Nobody thinks you're here on friendly terms and you were just followed by a posse. We all know exactly what you're up to, Judas. When those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, should we strike with a sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Who's that? Peter. Who's the high priest? A servant? Malchus. But here in Luke, we get one piece of the puzzle that nobody else includes. And what I think is interesting is this is the, probably the one thing about the Garden of Gethsemane we all know. And three of the gospel writers had no interest in it. Isn't that interesting? Maybe it's not for you. I find it interesting. Jesus said no more of this, and he touched his ear and healed him. Only Luke includes this detail. doesn't include which ear. We know from John, it's the right ear. We know who this guy is, Malchus. Here's the other thing we know. This is the last recorded of Jesus before the cross, recorded miracle of Jesus before the cross. The last person Jesus helped before he died on the cross is a guy who came out to kill him. That's exactly why he's there. He's not there for the party. He's not there for the hors d'oeuvres. He's there with the posse to capture Jesus and figure out how do we get this guy dead before Sabbath. And that's exactly why he's there. We have no idea if Malchus had a change of heart. We know he had a change of ear. Okay, that was free. That was inappropriate. Sorry. Jesus said to the chief priests and officers, verse 52, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs when I was with you day after day in the temple? You didn't lay on hands on me. And then he, now he answers as to why this is true. Right now is your hour. Right now is the power of darkness. You get this moment. You only get this moment because God has ordained that you would have this moment to accomplish his purposes. Jesus then yields in compassion, as we see as he healed the servant of the high priest. In compassion, he is yielding to this evil posse, to the, to the powers of darkness, in order to accomplish his purpose, to bring salvation to even those who would bind him and kill him. What happens next? Jesus is, goes before a trial that, by all intents and purposes, breaks almost every rule of trials in the Old Testament. Over the next Several hours, he is going to be convicted at his own words, convicted over contradictory witnesses. He is going to be abused, and he's going to be turned over. None of the proceedings were legal by any stretch of the Old Testament law, and he's convicted nonetheless. The religious leaders then take him to Pilate, and Pilate's final determination of Jesus is what? He's done nothing. He flogs him, puts a crown of thorns on him. Even at that moment, hasn't decided to have him crucified, but has Jesus crucified in order to keep the religious leaders from starting a riot? Because there is one good way to lose your job in Rome, and that's lose control of your people. If you didn't know this, to lose your job in Rome also means losing your life. So Pilate was up against a rock and a hard place. 
crucifying Jesus seems good enough. And I'm going to get some political cred out of it. I'll put a sign above his head that says king of the Jews. So that way the Jews can always know I killed their kings. Jesus goes to the cross and he spends hours on the cross in darkness, bearing on himself the sin and rebellion and the penalty for our sin and rebellion as the father poured out his wrath on him. The least painful parts of that experience were the nails. The Father pouring out his wrath unto Christ because of our sin and rebellion was the suffering he truly endured. At the end of that time, when everything was done that ought to have been done, Jesus said, it is finished, and he breathed his last. Who killed Jesus? Not the Romans, not the Jews, not the centurions, not a spear, not a nail, not his body failing. Jesus voluntarily died when he said, it's time for me to die. Jesus never stopped. In all of this weekend, being in total control, total and complete devotion to, in meekness, accomplishing the will of the Father. Jesus died, and three days later, the hour of darkness was over. He walked out of a tomb and said, all who believe in me have their sins forgiven and inherit eternal life with me forever. Thank God for us that he was meek in that moment. Jesus is crucified, nailed to the cross, that we might have hope. That's not what we expected. And in the moment of hardship, we would do what the disciples did, say, I need a strong Savior. I don't need a meek one. Not what we expected. Trouble, yes, but not this kind of trouble. By way of closing, I want to look at one of Jesus' parables. I want to give you the opportunity to decide which way you would betray Jesus. Oh, thank you for that. You're welcome. We're going to look at one of Jesus' parables with a mind towards this. How do we understand what's going on in our hearts? So in that moment of betrayal, we can know why it's happening because that is the key that allows us to have the opportunity in repentance to instead of running out naked, standing by our Savior by His grace. How do we avoid what happened to the disciples? We need to recognize it is a matter of the heart just as Jesus taught his disciples. So if you want to, turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 13, verse 1. This is a well-known parable, the parable of the sower. I'm beginning in verse 3, fairly brief. I'm going to read the parable and Jesus' explanation. A sower went out to sow. Okay, we've got to stop. He is not talking about quilting. A sower is one who is broadcasting their seeds. A lot of times nowadays in modern agriculture, we don't broadcast sow most crops. They are planted with machinery. The corn is placed into the soil and soil is placed over it. Many types of uh, agricultural products back then, the sowing was a broadcast sowing. You'd have seed and you'd just scatter it about and through rainwater and that sort of thing, the seed would uh, catch root. So a sower went out to sow. As he sowed, some of the seeds fell along the path and birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on the rocky ground where they did not have much soil. Immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose and they were scorched, or I should say when the sun rose, they were scorched. Since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns and the thorns grew up and choked them. Verse 8, other seeds fell on the good soil and produced grain. Some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear so what's the goal of sowing? What's the goal? 
harvest. That's the goal. Your, your goal is the harvest. And the harvest we see here has a function of what kind of soil the seed finds. So we need to understand what he means by this. So just look down a little further in your scripture. It's in verse 18, Jesus' explanation of the parable of the sower. He says here then, the parable of the sower, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom of God and does not understand it, the evil one snatches away what has been sown in his heart. Okay, stop there. So where is the soil? What he's describing with the soil, he's trying to help us understand the condition of the human heart. So the issue here is how is the human heart, your heart and my heart, responding to the word of the kingdom of God? And he describes the responses to the word of the kingdom of heart with how the seed operates within the soil. So the first kind of soil was that path and the the seed doesn't go anywhere and the birds just run by and get it. So on this path, people hear the word of the kingdom. Jesus, that's good, whatever. Good for you. You do you. Uh, I don't get it. I don't need it. Moving on. That's it. So hear the word of the kingdom. Jesus loves sinners. He died for you. You can receive forgiveness and eternal life. Good for you. What are you doing this weekend? There's just no response. It's the human heart that is hardened and says, I don't understand it. I don't need it. I don't buy it. What needs to happen to that soil that it may respond favorably to the word of God? It needs to be tilled. That's what you need to do to any soil that's not receiving the seed. You need to till it up so they can receive the seed. All right, let's look at the explanation for the next soil. Verse 20, as for what fell on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root. He endures for a while, but when tribulation or persecution arises on account of word, immediately he falls away. So this person, they go on a men's retreat. Sorry, guys, are you back? You go on a, to a marriage conference. You, uh, you go out for a weekend and read your Bible on the, on the beach. Uh, you have a powerful movement of God in uh, church. You hear a favorite song on the radio. You maybe have a dream. I don't know, something happens. You go, God is real. I love Jesus. I want some of this. And, and then you go about your day and bad stuff happens. So you come down off the mountaintop experience of God and then real life kicks in. And, and Jesus doesn't make any sense in real life. Jesus makes sense at a conference center. Jesus makes sense when I don't have to go to work. But Jesus doesn't make a lot of sense in the grind of real life. That Jesus doesn't make a lot of sense when I got to show up to work on Monday and deal with that boss or that coworker. It doesn't make sense when I can deal with these issues in my home or in my community. Jesus doesn't make a lot of sense when I'm watching the news, whatever that is. So what this person does is once they encounter the realities of real life, they say, I got no room for Jesus. He's not showing up. I need, a, I need a savior with a sword, not a savior who's meek and mild. And so that's the ground. So what's the solution to rocky ground? Same as, a, as the path. What is it? We need our hearts tilled. We need the ground turned. Something needs to happen in our heart in that moment that we might receive his word. What about the thorns? Look with me. Verse 22. Still with me in Matthew 13? As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. So this person hears the word and receives it, says, I get it, but there's two obstacles to that uh, word bearing fruit in their life. And these obstacles are two sides of the same coin. One is the cares of this world. How could Jesus possibly consider himself to be good, loving, and, and whatever else if my life is like this? That's the cares of this world. 
On the other side is the person who has been deceived by riches. He describes it as the deceitfulness of riches. He say, oh, I got Jesus? Great. Jesus is really nice and everything, but I got better things going on. I got some pretty important irons in the fire. I'm kind of a big deal. I got some stuff going on. I mean, Jesus is nice, but church seems trite, and, and the Bible seems a little outdated. And so, you know, good for you, but, but my life is kind of a big deal. Here's what's funny. For those of us who find ourselves in the cloud of the, the realities of life, sometimes what we think is this. If I had money to fix my problems, I could finally be fruitful for the kingdom of God. Have you ever thought that? Not you guys. Not. It's first service only. That's what we think. I got all these problems, and, and I've asked this before, but you all, none of you ever answer me. You got the number, right? Do you have the number? If I had this much, everything would be fine. You don't have the number? Now you're working on it, aren't you? Now, now, now I got to figure that out. So if I had this much, all these problems would go away, and I would finally be able to be fruitful for God. If you had that number, all you do is change from being having the difficulties of life to succumbing to the deceitfulness of riches. You haven't fixed the fruitfulness problem. The fruitfulness problem is not a circumstances issue. It's a heart issue. That's what Jesus is trying to communicate. It's not whether or not your life is good or whether or not your life is lousy. The question is, what's going on in my heart? And what's the solution to a person who can't be fruitful because of the cares of this world or the deceitfulness of riches? We need our ground tilled, and we need all that waste removed. Finally, he looks at the last one. It's for what is sown on the good soil. This is one who hears it and understands it. Built into that word understand is believes, trusts God's word says what God says is true and good. This person who relies on the Lord and his word bears fruit, some a hundredfold, some 60, another 30. The one who hears and understands, I take Jesus at his word, Jesus saves sinners like me, bears fruitfulness. Not waiting for life to get better, not hoping life doesn't get worse, but it says, instead says, I take Jesus at his word. What do we do to till the soil? What do we do to till the soil? The way soil is tilled in our hearts, the fancy word for that is repentance. Soil is tilled when we go to the Lord and don't pretend we're better than we are. Lord, life is awful. I don't know if I can hack it. Everybody ever prayed that prayer? That may sound very unspiritual, but I've just summarized about 30 psalms. I don't know if I can hack it, I need you to show me how I can believe you. I need you to do a work in my heart. I need the power of your spirit. Repentance and trust in God's power by his spirit is the first step in having the soil of our heart turned over. Say, God, I don't know what to do here. I don't even know how to act. I'm not sure how to change the hardness of my heart, but I can't receive your word because of all these challenges I see. I need you to do a work on my heart. It's finally admitting I'm not going to be okay when this stuff outside of me is okay. I'll be okay when God changes my heart, when I can trust him the way I ought to. Okay, just three quick things that I, I, I try to end with these to be annoying. And uh, yeah, no, somebody said, no, you're already there. We're good. There's a lot of Bible stories we've covered this summer. We talked about Gideon. We talked about Samson. We talked about Rahab. We talked about, uh, who else did we talk about? Esther. All of them lead to this one. 
all of them are leading to Jesus. Jesus is the center. Jesus is the hero. Jesus is the point. Jesus is the culmination of centuries of human brokenness. God dies to fix it all. God saves sinners like you and me. That's the hope of your scripture. The hope of every single historical narrative we've covered this summer and more is there is a Savior coming, there is a Savior who has come, and He dies to save us from our sin and give us eternal life. That's the whole point. I hope we're inspired by Bible stories. I hope they move us to be dedicated to worship God. I hope they do all the things. But at the end of the day, the Bible is supposed to help us come to the point where we say, Jesus really is that awesome. He saved a sinner like me and like you. Okay, just a question between you and me. Don't answer out loud unless you're very bold. Do you ever, just a little bit, wish Jesus would offer something more than forgiveness? You ever say to yourself, you know, forgiveness is great. Thank you. There's one or two other things we need to address, Jesus. And we start pulling that sword out. I need a Savior who gets off the meek train and handles my business. What the, the, the fix for that is not to pretend that we don't get disappointed with God when he doesn't meet our expectations. The, the fix for that is to till the soil of our heart. What do we do to till the soil of our heart? Repentance. God, I'm disappointed with you. I thought you would, and you didn't, and I think you made it worse. Ever been there? I don't think I'm supposed to feel this way about you, but I do. I need you to change something about what's going on in me. And I'll just trust you to do it. I'm not going to pretend like I'm okay. I'm not going to pretend like I can gin up good positive vibes. I'm just going to rest the fact you forgive people with bad attitudes like me. And I need you to change my heart. That's called repentance. And that's the beginning of tilling the soil. Last question, we'll end with this one. Imagine yourself in the Garden of Gethsemane that night and what i just want to ask you as you think about those soils in particular why would you run from jesus pay attention to how i asked that question i wasn't wondering whether or not you would run we all would run so let's be easy on the disciples let's be honest we wouldn't have even pulled the sword out by the time jesus got to that part where where, where greg go and he ran before the disciples did because i believe in the how do you uh, get out of a hungry bear situation, right? Just be faster than the other disciples. Why would you run in that moment? What is it about Jesus in this moment? I have trouble with you because you're not. And what is that? And do you think he doesn't know all about it? You think he's like, oh, gee, I didn't know about that. Jesus told his disciples, he told Judas, you would betray me. He told his disciples, when, I strike, when they strike the shepherd, you're going to run away. He knows what's going on in our hearts. The way to move the soil in our hearts is say, Jesus, I'm disappointed. thought you would have handled this by now. What is it in, the, in that moment that we would run? Is it the suffering and trial we're under? Is it the deceitfulness of riches? Is it the, the difficult situations we face in our life? Come to Jesus and trust him with your stuff and just repent. And see what he does. See if he does a change in your heart. Not what, are you, not what we expected. Trouble, yes but we want our heart changed that we can receive the Savior who saved our souls.